Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel Lim. Hello, hello. And a very special guest. Yeah, Ken Shigematsu. So you weren't, weren't going to let me say his name. <laughs> you were weren't going to say his name. I was going to yeah. say his name. <laughs> I asked you three times how to pronounce it. He told me, yeah. and then he was like, Todd, just don't be American. <laughs> I was like, how can I, how's the best way for me to do this podcast? Because I know you already like this guy. I can tell. So this is going to be one of those podcasts, Daniel, where I don't get to talk as much and that's fine. I'm fine with that. Uh, and I was like, how, how, like, what do you think? Um, how, how am I supposed to behave myself? He was like, just don't be American. It's like, all right. <laughs> and for anyone who is not American, they know exactly what I'm talking I about. Know. <laughs> I will make no comments about Canada being America's hat. Yes. Or See, anything uh, else. All right. So I will, I will remain <laughs> deferential and, uh, yeah. and kind. Okay. So and Ken, offensive, Ken, just like you <laughs> lovely people. Ken lives in the in the in the best city in the world which is my hometown where i grew up in vancouver and it's a city that is one of the you know honestly these last three years todd we've gone to australia um yes. doing consulting and work out there and, and sydney reminds me of vancouver but it doesn't beat vancouver in my books and i know i've offended a lot of the aussies out there yeah but vancouver not is not the ones from melbourne <laughs> yeah that's right that's right they're like yeah <laughs> stick, right. It to, stick it to sydney <laughs> <laughs> Sydney Siders. So, yes, Ken is the senior pastor of 10th Church in Vancouver, BC. And he has a, a fascinating story, which we'll hear about on the episode here. But before entering pastoral ministry, worked for Sony out in Tokyo. And his first book, you've probably heard of God in My Everything. It's mm. such a an amazing introduction into a rule of life and into spiritual practices. And, and that's why I was super, super excited to, to get survival guide for the soul, his newest book, because it really is a, it, it continues all, along that route and digs into the spiritual discipline. So thank you, Ken, for being on the podcast with us. Yeah, no, my pleasure, Daniel. And uh, Todd, nice job with my name. You did it perfectly. Uh, it's a Japanese <laughs> name, but it's pronounced phonetically. So uh, nice work. <laughs> so, so listeners, just to give you a glimpse into the background or the weeks leading up to this podcast. So oftentimes when authors write new books, we have the opportunity to, to, there's always a greater opportunity to interview people when they have a book. Yes. Not we that we, yes. On a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. So don't think that we, um, there's a lot that we don't do. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So yeah, just because you have a book doesn't mean you get to go on the podcast. No. But, but with Ken, knowing his heart and his heart for the church and his heart for pastors and leaders to finish well, right? No, to, to thrive and to finish well. I was excited to read the book before the interview. And here's the thing. I, if you were to look at my email, you would see a lot of emails going back and forth with Ken and I leading up to the interview because I'm like, I'm reading through it and I'm like, wait a second. Hey, Ken, are you, do you know the Enneagram? What, what Enneagram number are you? <laughs> and, and you're a three, right, Ken? That's right. Yes. Yes. I'm a three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which you, yeah. do you know what your in, wing is in your question? I think that my wing is yeah. probably a two. Yeah. Okay. So three for people who might not be familiar with the Enneagram is the achiever. And I think two, if I recall correctly, is the person who serves and, and, and seeks to help. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is that. And if you were to look at the book and here's, here's my advice. If you are a three and I, I, I guessed that he was a three because of the stories that he was writing and, 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 and all that. But if you are a three or if you're an eight on the Enneagram and you are just striving and you have this MO of go, 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 go. And you know how important the spiritual disciplines are and how important soul work is. I mean, that you even know that iceberg, that picture that, you know, so much of the iceberg is under the surface and, and you recognize that, but you don't necessarily relate to, um, Dallas Willard or Richard Foster or a Henry Noun, which are giants, giants in the spiritual disciplines and, you know, in, in, this, in the faith. And you love what they write, but you don't necessarily completely resonate. Man, you are going to love this book because honestly, I feel like your subtitle should have been instead of how to flourish spiritually in a world that pressures us to achieve, it should have been spiritual disciplines for the Enneagram three. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll be for the next edition. So uh, we'll definitely credit you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the book uh, and then we'll get into the questions. Yeah, so a lot of us who believe in God would, would, would say, I believe that, that God loves us, God loves me, but we often still function as though our, our true value is determined by what we do, what we achieve, how others view us. And so I wanted to explore the, the spiritual practices that awaken us to a deep sense that we are truly loved by God so that we can pursue a life of contribution and achievement, not out of a desperate need to validate ourselves, but out of a place of relaxed gratitude that comes from knowing that we are already accepted and beloved by the one who matters most. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so, yeah, <laughs> this is going to be good. All right, so um, I do want to go ahead and get us into our, our first question, and then we will begin to unpack, I think, more from this because uh, here's what, Ken, I don't know if you've heard any of these or not, but what typically happens is Daniel and I can tell fairly early on how things are going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm guessing we're going to do our best to ask you all five questions. But I'm guessing this is going to be fun and we're going to get off track in a very, very good way. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and, right. and get us in there yeah. uh, and get started. Roll the dice. All right. So who are you currently learning from? One of the, the practices that I, that I write about in Survival Guide for the Soul that's been really helpful for me is silent meditation. And so I've been learning a fair amount from a friend of mine. I'm, I'm actually doing this conversation from the, the campus of UBC, the University of British Columbia. My friend Hillary McBride is just finishing up her PhD in psychology here. And so it's been interesting to learn about how spiritual practice connects with, with neuroscience and, and, and the way we actually experience life. And so a lot of people think that a practice like silent meditation is self-absorbed and self-indulgent. But according to the psychological research, if a person meditates between 15 to 20 minutes a day for over six weeks, and then a disabled person walks into the room, they're going to be 100 times more likely to respond to that person. And so I've been learning from Hillary that practices like meditation actually make us more compassionate and, and more loving. Well, and is that because it just slows us down then and we're, we become more aware or what is yeah, that? I'm curious about the why. 
Yeah, part of it is that meditation uh, rewires our, our brain. And, mm. and, and so the, the data coming out of places like Stanford uh, point out that if a person meditates for, again, 15 or 20 minutes a day for six weeks, and then we were to do a brain scan on the person who's been meditating, it would show that the neural networks in the brain associated with feeling anxiety and depression have actually shrunk. And so a person experiences more joy, more of a sense of aliveness. And so I think that's part of it. The data also shows that if a person meditates on a compassionate God, they will grow more compassionate. But if we meditate on a God who is angry and judgmental and a fundamentalist, uh, we'll will become more angry and judgmental. So the the character of the God upon whom we are meditating definitely shapes who we become. So for those who've, who've read Survival Guide for the Soul, they're going to have a good picture as to what you mean when you talk about meditation. But for those who don't, walk us through what that looks like for you. And yeah, just give us a, give us a picture of that. Sure. So I am a very easily you know, distracted kind of person. So at any given time, I can feel like there are 127 chimpanzees jumping around in my head. And so mm. at some point in the morning, as I did this morning, I, I found it helpful um, to sit. And I'm sitting now. I just I took a seat. And I simply take some time to breathe deeply in through my nose and then breathe slowly out of my nose. Mm. Breathing in slowly. Exhaling slowly. And then I start to wonder how much time has gone by anyway. <laughs> and so I'll reach for my phone, not to check my messages, but to open up a free app called Centering Prayer. I, I prefer these free apps. And there's a timer that I can set to say 15 or 20 minutes. So I'm not thinking about the time. And I continue breathing deeply. I'm not sure if you and Todd could hear the, the chime or not, but uh, yeah. the, the app has a chime that suggests that I'm being called to pray by a, a country bell or a, a bell in a monastery. So I continue to breathe deeply in through my nose and then exhale slowly. And then I'll start to think of all the things I ought to be doing my, my to-do list. That's where the three in the Enneagram, the achiever, sort of starts to, to surface. Yeah. And so I'll reach for a Bible or maybe a text that I'm familiar with. And every time my mind wanders, I'll simply repeat the, the sacred words from the Bible as an affirmation. So I'm distracted. Be still and know that I am God. Breathing in deeply through my nose. Be still and know that I am God. Hmm. And when the 15 or 20 minutes are done, the chime sounds and I, I stand up. And I, I feel just a bit more relaxed and throughout the day, just a bit more focused and a bit more aware of the presence and love of Jesus in my life. It sounds really simple, um, but it really has been a life-changing practice for me. 
So what effect had do you do you find that that's had on your marriage, on your family, on your leadership at the church? Yeah, my wife was just telling me a couple of days ago over dinner that thanks to this silent centering prayer, I'd become a more relaxed and and joyful person. And so typically uh, she said that in May I get really tired and irritable and cranky because it's been a long year. Easter has passed us. I'm looking forward to the summer. Um, But this past spring, I did a 14 city speaking tour related to survival guide for the soul here in Canada from Victoria all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland, which is one of the most easterly points in Canada. And Mm -hmm. she and I thought I would be exhausted by the end of this 14 city tour. But she said, I seem relaxed and joyful. She says that I'm a better listener and that I am more in tune with, with our son, Joey. So, um, our, our, our staff, um, last September had an event for the, the, the pastors and the staff where they were invited to bring their, their kids. And Joey was, um, in fifth grade, he was 10 years old. And beforehand they asked him and the other kids some questions about their parents as a kind of prep for a get to know you or how well do you know your colleagues game? And one of the questions they asked uh, Joey, he's 10 years old, was, um, what is your dad's hobby? And Joey didn't know that I would be privy to the answers later, but, but Joey wrote down, my dad's hobby is to spend time with me. And, and so I was, I was surprised by that answer. Um, but I think that this, this um, meditation, this silence has made me more relaxed, according to my wife, less stressed out, more joyful, and, and more attuned to our son, more attuned to her. So it really is, is life-shaping. You know, Parker Palmer, the, the Quaker writer, once said that self-care is never a selfish act. It is the stewardship of the only gift we have to offer the world. Wow. And so when we take time for the care of our soul, to connect with God, to receive from him, uh, it's not a selfish thing. It, it, it means that uh, we have more to offer the people right around us, our families, our communities, our businesses, our neighborhoods. And so it's not only a gift for us, but a gift for those around us. That's wonderful. I, man, I love that Parker Palmer quote. <laughs> I know. I was like, who was that? Okay. I got to yeah. remember it. I got to remember it. I remember enough of the quotes so I can Google it and figure out who it is. <laughs> yeah. So Ken, I know, I know when I read the book that you also, or maybe I read it wrong, but you also do this while you're walking as well, or was it another spiritual practice? Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that Vancouver is superior to Sydney. So let me just counter that for the folks in Sydney. Uh, <laughs> Sydney obviously is, is a spectacular city. A lot of people in yeah. Vancouver experience depression, I think partly because of the fact that it is cloudy much of the year. The summers are gorgeous. It rains yeah, a lot. You're right. The price of real estate, as you know, Daniel, is, is, is really, really high. Uh, and, and so I've got a friend of mine who's a significant leader here in the city who, who struggles with, with depression. And so he finds it helpful uh, to, instead of 
sitting while meditating to, to walk and, and to, to give thanks to God. And he finds that the combination of, of meditation and, and walking helps to lift his spirits and, and stave off some of the, the depression and melancholy. You know, um, psychiatrists who uh, teach at UCLA and other schools like Daniel Siegel point out that if a person is struggling with high levels of anxiety and depression, obviously at times medication can be really helpful. I believe that medication can be common grace, a gift from God. But psychiatrists also mm. tell us that in some cases, meditation and some simple exercise can be just as beneficial, if not more beneficial. And so sometimes um, it can be helpful to do physical exercise, which I find life-giving, and spiritual exercise. And some people, like my friend here in Vancouver, combine the two by walking and meditating at the same time. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now, Ken, how, how many years have you been at 10th Church now in Vancouver? Yeah, so I have been there almost 23 years. The church had cycled through 20 pastors in 20 years prior to my being there. And it had gone from over a thousand people back in the heyday in the 1950s to a hundred and something in the mid 1990s when I I arrived. And uh, on one of the first days on the job, the secretary walked into my office and said, Ken, if the ship sinks now, everyone is going to blame you because you were the last captain at the helm. So she was trying to motivate me to work harder, That's encouraging. but I just felt really stressed out and uh, anxious and burdened uh, and, and desperate to, to make a go of it, which was probably the, the wrong impulse in some ways, but uh, that's how I, I felt. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now for listeners who don't know Vancouver, Vancouver is very post-Christian and, um, wouldn't, and, and Ken, you're, I mean, you guys are having, you have a thriving ministry, multiple campuses reaching Vancouver. Talk to us about your leadership and talk to us about how you lead your team, especially in engaging the post-Christian culture that Vancouver is. Yeah. Thank you for, for asking that. Um, you know, when I first came to 10th, as I just alluded to, I, I felt this enormous burden just to keep the ship afloat and, and honestly, not primarily for the glory of God or even the good of the community, but so I wouldn't look like a total loser, an abject failure. And so my hmm. motives weren't, weren't completely pure by any means. But early on in my time at 10th, my mentor, Leighton Ford, who is the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham, happened to be in town. And I was in a very discouraged place. My fiance and I had just broken up. Uh, there were a lot of people looking to me to help pull 10th up. And I just felt very inadequate at that time and lonely. And I was desperate for some some encouragement, but I was too embarrassed to ask Leighton for this. And so Leighton Ford and I are sitting in my car outside of the church. And instead of asking him for encouragement, what I really needed, I said, Leighton, can you give me some counsel? And so Leighton paused, he crossed his long legs and he said, Ken, remember that God is an artist. He will not lead you to copy anyone else. So seek God for a unique vision for this place. Hmm. And so I took those words to heart and, and believe that our true success wouldn't be determined by our numbers or our well-knownness, but by seeking God, understanding what was in God's heart and mind for, for 10th, and then simply executing that. And, and so I try to emphasize to our leaders that, of course, we want to grow in, in health 
and in, and in size, if that's God's will. But the most important thing is to determine what is in God's mind and heart and, and to, to live that out. So what, what does that look like um, as, as you continue down that track? And I mean, how many years now, I mean, 20 something years later, uh, what, what is that? How is that translated into your, your heart and your strategy in reaching the city? Yeah. So, so part of what that has looked like um, was, was somewhat uh, counterintuitive. So in the early days when I didn't know that, um, you know, 10th would actually survive, I, I was praying and once um, during a time of prayer, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, if you will bless those who cannot repay you, I will bless you, uh, meaning the church. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but, but not long after, a homeless man, a young man named Robert, began to sleep outside our church building. And one of our elders came to Robert and, and took him to his laneway house. And for folks that may not be familiar with laneway houses, as I mentioned, the cost of real estate is really expensive in Vancouver. So a lot of people will convert their garages into, into homes. And so this elder took Robert to his laneway house and said, you can live here as long as you want it free of charge. But Robert kept gravitating to the church and, and continued sleeping outside the building. And then on a cold February morning, Robert succumbed to the cold and, and, and he was unresponsive to our, our touch. He, he, he died. Obviously, that was very shocking. And so I said, we're going to open up our church building on the coldest nights of the year to the homeless. And we began a shelter ministry. And as, as I look mm. back, that was a, a turning point for us as we began to reach out to people who could not advantage us, including the homeless. And then in other years to, 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 to vulnerable children and to women and, and children in places like Cambodia and Southeast Asia who were vulnerable to being trafficked. Uh, the Holy Spirit has, has, has poured himself out in, in fresh ways at 10th. And we've seen a whole stream of people from all different backgrounds come to know Christ, not only the poor, but people that are artists, that are executives, uh, in some cases, athletes. Uh, 10th is a very diverse community. And, and I think that our, our commitment to serve the poor has invited the spirit's presence to be more richly present. It is also, um, I think one, the respect though, this hasn't been an intentional strategy of secular people who see what we're trying to do for the city and especially the poor and have been drawn in. Yeah. So talk to us about that because you, you guys are multiplying and you're also you, you have this ministry to the poor as well. I mean, how, how do they, cause sometimes as we've seen in churches, most churches don't do both. I mean, talk to us about how you balance that and what that looks like in practical ministry. Yeah. And, and, and Daniel, uh, it hasn't necessarily been an intentional strategy. So some years ago, uh, there were a couple of yeah. authors from the States that came up and wanted to feature us in a book called transforming church and, and so they, they came to one of our services and uh, Kevin and Rob, the authors, looked at each other and, and they turned to me and said, uh, in the United States, we've never seen this kind of diversity in a, in a church before uh, in terms of racial diversity, in terms of age, but also in terms of socioeconomic um, status. So they're, they're the poor, but also people that are CEOs, uh, people um, that are prominent in the city as newscasters, et cetera. And um, so we went to my office after the service and, and 
they pulled out their recording devices and said, tell us your strategy about how Tenth became so diverse. And I, I said, you know, honestly, there hasn't been a step-by-step strategy. And, and so one of the authors said, well, tell, tell us about your, your life. And I said, well, I was born in Tokyo. And then when I was two years old, our family briefly moved to New York City. And then we moved to England, to London. My, my dad worked as a broadcaster for the BBC. And then when I was eight years old, we moved to Vancouver. And then I went off to Chicago to go to college and then went back to Tokyo to work for the Sony Corporation, went to Boston to go to seminary, went to Southern California to start a church with a friend of mine, and then moved to Vancouver. And, and then um, one of the authors asked me, so where is home for you? And I said, you know, honestly, um, I don't feel especially at home anywhere. I grew up with very loving parents, a loving family, uh, but I don't feel completely at home in Vancouver because, you know, I'm, I'm of Japanese ancestry. I'm a racial minority. When I was working in Tokyo in the corporate world, even though I looked genetically Japanese, it was obvious that I didn't completely fit in there either. I'd be riding the subway at uh, 12 a.m. or 12.30 a.m., and I would throw off my suit jacket and just sort of stretch out my arms um, you know, on the seat, and people would stare at me. I, I later realized that j- real Japanese people don't do that because space is at such a premium in Japan that even if you're the only person sitting in, in the train, you, you're, you're supposed to economize your space you know, or one of the few people in the train. And, and, and one mm. of the authors said, you know, here's what we think you're doing here at 10th. Um, because you've never felt really at home anywhere. You're setting a table where everyone is welcome. And, and so that really resonated with me. I, I feel that at 10th, we are, are trying to set a table where everyone is welcome, but especially those that are not religious, that, that don't have overt faith or may have been hurt by the church. And so I think that posture causes um, the poor to be loved, but also uh, people that are very successful. And as my wife often points out, and she came from a family that was successful from a worldly perspective, that often wealthy people have more problems, more complicated problems than people that grew up with less. And so we want to to demonstrate Christ's love for all. Well, I'm eager to ask you our third question because uh, just because of the the groundwork and foundation that you've already laid from a a spiritual discipline standpoint. Um, Other than spiritual disciplines, what are one or two things that you feel like you need to do daily to stay sharp as a leader? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I I do each morning is to go on a run. We've got a golden retriever named Sasha. So I begin my day, even before meditation, with a brief run in the neighborhood. And then a few times a week, I will go to the gym and I'll swim. I will uh, also uh, run with our son, maybe two or three times a week. I enjoy exercise. It's it's life-giving for me. And so that's a way for me to to clear my head and, and to actually uh, open up in, 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 in fresh ways to the spirit of God. So when I'm in the water, I, I, I sometimes um, cite the verse from, um, I believe it's Acts 17, where Paul says that in God, we live and move and have our being. And so for me, swimming or being in the water or on the water is a kind of a spiritual experience. So um, exercise um, is, is something really important to me. It doesn't take a lot of discipline for me personally. It takes more discipline for me not to exercise because um, it's been so beneficial for me. 
Would you add another one? I would also add, um, and this is, this actually is a spiritual practice, but, um, the prayer of examine, which was introduced by Ignatius of Loyola 500 years ago, is just a powerful prayer that evokes a sense of joy for me. And so at the end of the day, I begin my morning, as I suggested earlier, by um, engaging in some silent prayerful meditation. But at the end of the day, I open up a, an app, a free app called Reimagining the Examine. It's Reimagining the Examine. And it will invite me to look back over the last 24 hours or so and to give thanks to God for two or three things that felt like gifts. And so if I were to do that right now, I would give thanks for an early morning swim at an outdoor pool that's part salt water. Love doing that. I would give thanks for a delicious dinner last night with my family and then a chance to get to spend some time with um, my friend Lisa from high school who I haven't seen in years. My uh, sister reconnected us just to get together um, and catch up. And it, it sounds really simple, but the data shows that, this, and this is coming out of places like Harvard, that if you will spend three or four minutes a day identifying two or three things that you're grateful for, that it will change the way you actually move through the world. And so if you've ever been in the market for a new car or a car that's new to you, so for example, my colleague Edlin has been in the market for an Austin Mini Cooper. And so wherever she goes in Vancouver, she, she notices Austin Mini Coopers. It's not like there are more of these vehicles on the road. It's just that she's mm-hmm. right primed to notice them. So it seems like there are more. And when we engage in a simple um, Thanksgiving exercise, like the perv, the exam, and identify two or three things that felt like gifts from the last 24 hours, it will start to seem like more good things are coming into our lives, even though that may not be objectively true. And then when we connect these gifts with God's love for us, we wear more of the yoke of the Father's love on our shoulders. And so this is really powerful for me. And and especially so if I'm feeling stressed or anxious or a bit depressed, it just, it, it has a way of lifting me. Yeah. Yeah. So for our next question, let's, let's talk about your home life, right? With your wife, Sakiko and your son, Joey, what, what does leadership in your home look like these days? Well, I'm on a, a mini uh, sabbatical. So uh, part of what it looks like is um, cooking. So my wife is a great cook, but she also enjoys a break from cooking. And I'm not a very good cook, but just to step into the kitchen and to prepare something simple, it might be tacos, it might be something that I throw on the, the barbecue. That's, I think, part of what leadership looks like. Um, I write about Sabbath in Survival Guide for the Soul. I, I believe in the value of vacations. And so doing something practical like planning a vacation is, is a point of, of small, but I think significant leadership in our home. And then just initiating things with, with my wife, whether it's, it's a meal together that, that we enjoy at a favorite local restaurant or to do something with my son that he loves, like going crab fishing. I'm not a particularly good fisherman. I'm a total amateur in fact, but he loves crab fishing Mm -hmm. and he loves um, fishing for little salmon minnows. And so to initiate going uh, on a hike uh, to a river 
um, in a place called Lynn Canyon in North Vancouver, something that, that our young son oh, yeah. loves to do. And so, um, yeah, something like that, that would be life giving for him. And, and for me, uh, is, is a little bit of leadership, uh, that, uh, I, I can provide and, and enjoy initiating. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I, I guess, so, so let's talk about kind of home and, and, and church life and balancing everything or having different rhythms and that, because for you as a three, I know for our listeners listening in, they're probably imagining you as kind of this solitude and silent, uh, spiritual discipline guide who, you know, the favorite, your favorite thing to do is to meditate and not get things done. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, if they don't, if they don't understand the Enneagram, if they don't know you, they, that maybe just because of what you've said and the emphasis you have on the soul, that might be what's coming in their mind, but you, I mean, you're incredibly ambitious, with the Enneagram three. So, so talk to, talk to us about how you, how you wrestle with that tension, that tension of wanting to, um, of reach the lost of, of do more in the church of, you know, there, there's that tension that's just inside of you, but you also understanding the importance of, uh, the survival guide, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, being able to survive. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just about surviving, but about, as you mentioned earlier, really thriving. And so by nature, I am a workaholic, a three on the Enneagram, an achiever. And so when I was working for Sony, I was what they called a 7-Eleven man in in Tokyo, which meant that my workday literally went from seven in the morning to past 11 p.m. at night, including the commute. So it was, it was pretty crazy. And when I became a pastor mm. in Vancouver, I was keeping almost the same schedule. So it was, it was pretty nutty. So I know what that, that crazy, you know, driven, adrenaline rush lifestyle looks like. And so to mm. protect my own soul and, and to protect my marriage and family life, I've needed to live by what the monks call a rule of life. And as you alluded to earlier, I've written about that in the book, God in My Everything. I write about the pilgrimage to Ireland, what I learned from the monks and how I was able to apply those rhythms to an urban setting. And so uh, when I was a new pastor, I was often out 15, 14, 15 nights in a row for work-related activity. So it it was really unhealthy. And so when I learned from the monks about this, this rule or rhythm of life, I, I um, made a decision that I would only be out three nights a week maximum for work-related things. I mean, obviously there are exceptions during crunch time, but by rule, an exception is an exception. And as part of my rule, I uh, instituted a 24-hour Sabbath to do the things that bring life. I um, aimed instead of trying to get by on four or five hours of sleep to aim to get at least seven hours of sleep. So these are some really practical things. This rhythm of life or rule of life that was inspired by the monks has really protected not only me, um, our staff, our, our church, but also more importantly, um, my, my family life. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I, I, just quickly before we go to our last question, the rule of life. So I'd, I'd love to hear, is there something maybe on your rule of life that 
people wouldn't expect. Like, for example, on my rule of life, one of the things that I have is every year I'll read a book, at least one book that is... That's good, Daniel. You should. <laughs> Yeah, I don't need to read at all <laughs> the rest of this year. No, uh, at least one book that was written before the 1980s. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Because there's, mm. yeah, uh, just because there's so many books that, I mean, you, uh, there are so many books that just keep on coming out and you're like, oh, I want to read that. I want to read this. Yeah. I want to read that. But I, I found that when I would take a step back and just make sure to read at least one book that is pre 1980s, it, there's just, it's different writing. There's different perspective and there's different insight into what's going on in the world. So do you have something like that? Like something on your rule of life that's just kind of maybe out of the ordinary. Yeah, it's not quite so noble, but I, I learned from ancients as well, like uh, Ignatius of Loyola, as I mentioned in Benedict, but um, this may seem, seem a little um, out of the ordinary, but because water is so life-giving for me, as part of my rule of life, I, I like to sail at least a few times a year. I don't personally own a sailboat, and I know some people feel queasy and uh, seasick uh, on the water, but but for me, I, I prioritize some time sailing, whether it's from Vancouver to Vancouver Island or while we're on vacation. And so that really is, is restorative for me. This may not come as a surprise, but if people aren't familiar with a, a rule of life um, and it, they just associate it with monks, as part of my rule of life, I include a regular rhythm of going on dates with my wife. So her language of love is, is food. She comes from a food family. Her dad was a food executive. And, and so there have been times when I've wondered um, if we would do well to go see a, a marriage therapist. I said, it can't hurt. We can only help us. And she's from Japan. And she's, she'll say, well, um, you know, I'm from Japan. And, uh, you know, that would be very uncomfortable for me. Instead of spending 100 or 150 bucks on a uh, therapist, why don't we just go out for a nice dinner? <laughs> you know, not that we necessarily spend 150 bucks on dinner. But um, that's yeah. really important for her and, and for us and, and just being in a beautiful setting, eating good food and having a very transparent, open conversation or just a, a light and casual one um, has really been, been um, life-giving and beneficial for our marriage. And that's part of my rule of life as well. Love that. Well, I'm really intrigued to ask you this question as well. And that is, what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? I mean, you talked a little bit about this earlier at least, you know, 23 years ago, uh, coming into your church, but what would you tell your 20 year old self? Uh, what advice would you give? Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, I was a seven 11 man in, in the corporate world and I was keeping crazy hours as a new pastor at 10th. And I think I would tell myself what someone told me, I think in, when I was in my thirties, he said that if you are working in a factory, and he, he drew this out on a page, then the hours that you put in, if this makes sense, will pretty much directly correlate with your production. So the more hours you put in, if you're working in a factory, will mean more widgets produced in that factory. Uh, but my friend um, Doug said, but if you are working in a role that requires presence and wisdom, and that's true of, of a pastor, it's true if you work in the business world or in some professional role, then after you work a certain amount of hours, your presence will drop off. Your capacity for wisdom will drop off. 
And then I added later um, that if you keep working beyond that, then what psychiatrists call your reptilian brain will take over. And instead of being a danger for the kingdom, you become a danger to the kingdom. That's a quote wow. from Steve Brown from Arrow Leadership. And, and so wow. I would say, like, if you're 20 and if, if you're like me when I was you know, 20 years old, very driven, super ambitious, wanting to just go get them, uh, you know, thank God for that, that drive. But remember that God is sovereign, that it is God's work through you. And so as you seek to give to the world and to, to bring transformation to it, receive God's love and, and pursue your calling out of a deep sense of joy and a sense that you are, are cherished by God. Relax and, 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 and enjoy the journey. As my former professor Haddon Robinson said, before uh, you, you seek to, to give on behalf of God in service, receive from him first, receive his love, his life for you. That's really good. That's wonderful. Man, thanks, Ken, so much for the time you've spent with us today, your ministry, for the modeling that you do for uh, for us leaders in, in ministry. Where, where can people find more about you and connect with you? Well, our, our church website is uh, www.tenth, that's spelled out, so Tango Echo November Tango Hotel dot Charlie Alpha, so T-E-N-T-H dot C-A. And then um, my Twitter handle is simply uh, Ken Shigematsu and Todd, as I mentioned, you did pronounce it right. So it's phonetic. Um, it's at Ken Shigematsu, K-E-N, Kilo Echo November. And then Shigematsu is simply spelled S-H-I-G-E-M-A-T-S-U. So uh, yeah, you can contact me through Twitter. Uh, yeah, we'd love to be in touch with, with your friends and listeners. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks, Ken, so much for being with us. He is Ken Shigematsu, the uh, best-selling author of God in My Everything and the brand new book, Survival Guide for the Soul. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. 